Good morning, my friends, and welcome to Wednesdays in the Word. I'm glad you could be with me today as we continue to examine verse by verse the book of Romans, unfolding it together. We're in the midst of the fifth chapter. Today, I want to pick up our reading in verse 14 of chapter 5 of the book of Romans. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace by that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. We've been examining together in this fifth chapter issues related to sin. The last time we were together, we were looking in verses 12 and 13 and into the verse that I began with today, verse 14, we were looking into issues related to sin. Biblical facts about sin. This week, in our continuing study, we're going to be seeing more of those facts about sin and the great contrast between the outcomes of sin and the outcomes of grace. Briefly, what we looked at last time, just by way of review, beginning in verse 12, we were discovering the fact that sin, at its heart, means to be rebelling against God. It is not first and foremost a moral ethical issue, although sin certainly has moral ethical implications. But at its heart, at its root, sin has first and foremost to do with rebellion against God. A rebellion expressed in two different ways, although they always end up getting expressed together. The first way in which sin expresses itself is in the rejection of God's law. The rejection of God's law, as we discover it written in the scriptures, and or the rejection of God's law, as we find it discovered written upon our conscience. As we saw earlier in the book of Romans, all have broken the law, written on the books or written in the conscience. So first of all, sin at its heart is a rebellion against God shown by a breaking of his law. Secondly, and equally importantly, sin at its heart, rebellion against God at its heart, is to reject God's rightful authority over our lives. 
We were created by God. We were created for relationship with him. We were created to fulfill his purposes in our life. He made us. He designed us, knit us together in the womb. He knows what we were created for. And sin is a rejection of God's purpose and plan, a refusal to let him be God. You remember the great commandment, the first and greatest of the commandments is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, which expresses itself by letting him be Lord, following his purpose and plan, not our agenda, but his agenda. And of course, all have broken that command and all continue to struggle with breaking that command. So sin, first of all, has that idea of rebelling against God. Secondly, we discovered last time that sin, as a principle in this world, existed even prior to the time of Adam and Eve, and their fall, their sin, in the Garden of Eden that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. Now, the scripture helps us to understand that sin predated that, and the first to rebel against God to express the breaking of God's law and the refusal of God's authority was Satan, the devil. He then, after rebelling against God's intention in his life, then began to tempt the others in the angelic order, and one-third of the angels followed him in that rebellion. Sin, rebelling against God. Satan, the first one to express the essence of sin. He then tempts many others, many other angelic beings to follow and rebel against God in the same sense. Finally, as we get into the biblical narrative, we discover in Genesis chapter 3 that Satan then targets mankind, turns his attention from the angelic order to Adam and Eve, those persons created in the image of God, and he seeks to tempt them. He tempts them to break God's rightful law. Remember, has God really said? And tells them and encourages them to break the express commandment of God related to what could be eaten, what can't be eaten in the garden. But then beyond that, he also tempted them to take over God's rightful role in their lives. In fact, he frames his uh, his temptation in Genesis 3 by saying, you know, you do this, you can become your own gods. You don't need to be living in fulfillment and surrender to the purposes of God in your life. He doesn't have to be Lord. You can be God of yourselves. And of course, Adam and Eve sinned, bought the temptation, and therefore reflected all of these principles that we've been examining about sin. Now today, as we continue on in our study, verse 14 reminds us of some central truths. This entrance of sin into humanity's history and humanity's story. One of the things we discover as we read verses 14 and forward from there is that Adam and Eve's sin in that garden not only impacted upon their own lives, not only impacted upon their relationship with God, not only impacted in the sense that there needed to be a sacrifice made for their sin, not only impacted in that they were cast out of the garden until the ultimate sacrifice for sin, which was the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also discover that 
one of the consequences of their sin, their determination to rebel against God, was a corruption of the entire human race. As it puts it there, this, wherefore, just as, in verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Sin was in the world before the law was given, sin not counted, where there was no law. And yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. What's all of this about? Well, what the Bible explains to us here and other places is that all of us, men and women, have inherited from Adam, our forefather, a sin nature. What that means is all of us are inclined by nature now to rebel against God in our lives. Now, there's some debate within the study of the Word of God on how exactly that trans that sin nature is transmitted, and my purpose isn't to go into that today. My purpose is only to hold on to the reality of it. There is no one exempt from that transmission of a sin nature. Everyone discovers within their own lives, from their earliest memories, an inclination to rebel against God, to break his law, to not love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to try to take over the ownership and direction of our own lives. Everyone universally experiences that. One of the theologians said it's one of the, it's the worst case scenario of spiritual genetic transmission. <laughs> All of us have inherited something we wish we didn't inherit, which is this inclination towards sin. More than that, the scripture says, not only have all of us inherited this inclination, and which of us can't say amen to the reality of that inclination, but the scripture goes on to say, beyond the inclination, beyond the uh, inherited orientation to be inclined to sin, each of us individually has chosen to sin. Each of us individually has chosen to rebel against God, to break the greatest of the commandments, to seek to take over ownership of our life and run it as if we were our own God. All have done that. Now certainly, as you've been with me in our study of the book of Romans, how could one draw any other conclusion than that from the clear unfolding message in Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 4? We discover that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none who are good. No, not even one. We vary from one another in our relative scoring average, our batting average as far as our righteousness and, and uh, ethics. But we don't differ from one another in the sense that all of us are sinners before God. All of us have chosen to sin, to rebel. Therefore, you and I, all of humanity, not only has inherited the inclination, we have also operationalized it by our own choice. And therefore, we are sinners by choice, and we are sinners by heredity. Now, the Bible goes at great lengths to make that plain to us, because unless we understand that, we don't really have a foundation to understand why Christ came into this world. We don't really have a foundation to understand why we need to be saved. The Bible is very clear and very candid about the human condition. 
And I'm sure you understand, based on what I'm sharing with you, that what the Bible tells us about the human condition is a very different view than how the world views the human condition around us. The Bible, in its understanding and revelation to us from God's plan, tells us how mankind actually started out pure and through sin was corrupted. And there is no solution to that sin apart from divine intervention in sending his son and in our response in repentance and faith to what the Son of God did for us through his death on the cross. The prevailing mindset of the world, however, around us is much more optimistic about mankind. In fact, there's sort of a, uh, an evolutionary frame of reference that most people operate under, which means they saw mankind as sort of starting in the slime and gradually moving higher and higher and higher. That mankind is getting better and better and better. Well, there's no argument that mankind is making more and more scientific and, and uh, more and more and more technological progress. But are we making moral, spiritual progress? Only if we're blind to the reality and refuse to admit to ourselves the truth. The world is a mess. Human relationships are a mess. Uh, people do not seem to be able to let whatever inherent goodness exists within them come out and color the world in which they find themselves. No, we live in a brutal world, a world filled with sin, violence, self-centeredness. Now, the biblical picture is accurate to the experience that we have in our lives. Which worldview explains the facts better? And I submit with no apology the biblical worldview presented from God to us fits the facts better. I don't have to play games with myself and revise history to make it seem right. Whereas I always have to deny the observable realities to truly believe the world's view. Well, verse 14 tells us, Knowing all of that background of how sin operates and what it's done in this world, how it affects every person from heredity standpoint and also by personal choice. Verse 14 tells us that death therefore reigns over all people apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. It specifically reigned over all the people who lived from the time of Adam to Moses now, why was Moses presented as a stopping point here? Because in Moses, we had the law of God given. And therefore, uh, the time prior to Moses, we could look at is pre-law. Not that God hadn't written his laws on the conscience of humanity, but we didn't have the written formal law delivered until that time. But from Adam to Moses, all were under the reign of death due to sin. And from the time of Moses onward, where we not only had the conscience-written law of God, but the actual expressed written of God, written laws of God in the scriptures, all have continued to sin and therefore have death reign over them. Let me think about this word reign a little bit, because I think you need to understand the point here a little bit further. What God is saying is that sin and death reigns. To reign is talking about the idea that the inclination and temptation to sin, to rebel against God, to break his law, 
is ultimately irresistible to mankind. We may do differing, differing jobs in how much we've given in to moral failure and so forth, but none of us has a good batting average here. All of humanity has given in to the inclination, the temptation to sin. All strike out, to use a baseball metaphor here, all strike out, all except the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who never struck out. He was righteous and pure, holy and lawful in everything, attitude and action, throughout all of his life. You and I, as humanity, are all sinners, as Romans 1 to 4 may explain. All of us, as a consequence, have been separated from God. And apart from the gospel, what Jesus Christ came to do for us, we would stay separated. And those who reject the gospel already are separated and will forever stay that way because they've rejected the only solution to the universal problem of sin. Now, how's that for a summary of where we've been in the book of Romans from chapter 1 now into chapter 5. Sin, its inherited nature and its power and the fact that all of us give into it. The question is, well, who will save us from that sin? In Genesis chapter 4, uh, God says to Cain, sin's crouching at the door. It's desires for you. It wants to master you. Now, who can help us in that? Because none of us has the right batting average. All of us have failed. And the answer is, God did something to save us from sin. God did something by sending his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to save us from the unsavable, to deliver us from the impossible to solve problem of sin both our past sin and our current sin. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ to solve this problem. Think how it puts it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Isn't it wonderful that that saying deserves full acceptance? God is clarifying for us the truth of our condition and the truth of his solution. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. All of us are sinners. All of us need him. In John chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus says, I told you you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, meaning the Messiah, you will die in your sins. You see, the problem here is not merely that we have inherited a sin inclination, not merely that we've chosen to act on that inclination willingly and have rebelled against God, but that sin has separated us from God and we will stay separated from God we will die in our sins if we do not accept what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. That is the note of certainty and sobriety that you encounter in this portion of the book of Romans. 
That's why it's so amazing, as Romans 1.16 puts it, that Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. He knew the reality of sin. He knew the consequence of it, and that we would die in our sins. The gospel tells us about the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Through the Lord Jesus Christ in his death on the cross and resurrection, sin's penalty was paid. We talked about the word propitiation in our previous studies. It was paid for. It was atoned for. Through Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, the stain of sin is covered and his perfect life is able to be granted to us. That's the justification that the fifth chapter started with. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we begin to discover that Christ's death on the cross and resurrection set the stage for sin's power to actually be broken in the life of the believer. In fact, as we move forward, we're going to see in chapters 6 and 7 and 8 more about how even though we still remain in this fallen world and still battle against the flesh, a fallen body, as redeemed people, we can begin to discover victory through the enabling Holy Spirit. The power of sin is broken. The power of sin to keep us separated from God has been solved through the cross. The power of sin to dictate our behaviors now as redeemed people has also been broken. And God will explain to us how to live out the reality of the deliverance that will provide for us. So who will save us from sin that is crouching at the door, whose desire is for us and to master us? And the answer is, God will do that through sending the Lord Jesus Christ into this world. His work on the cross, the gospel that emerges from that, is the solution to sin. Sin's accountability, sin's stain, and sin's power. Isn't it wonderful what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ? In verses 15 to 19, and we won't finish looking at this today, but in verses 15 to 19, we are told now that there's a contrast that we need to understand between the gift of grace that's tied into the gospel and the tragedy of sin transmitted down through all of humanity. And it begins by reminding us the free gift is not like the trespass, or the free gift is not like the sin that we've been examining together. The free gift is not like the sin. <laughs> we've already seen what sin will do. We inherit it. We act on it. It separates us from God. It puts us in a hopeless condition. Nothing we can do to pay for our sin. Now, sin, that we've learned about that. But the free gift of God is very different from that. The free gift of grace has very different outcomes than those sad outcomes of the transmitted and inescapable reality of sin in the life of humanity. For those who repent of their sin and rebellion against God, acknowledge it to God, and turn their faith and rest to Jesus Christ and what he did for them on the cross, God says he gives us a free gift, a grace gift. It is the gift of salvation. A free gift of grace. It is the reason that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. This free gift is talked about in Ephesians as well. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 put it this way. For by grace you've been saved through faith. 
And that's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of your works, so that no one may boast about it. <laughs> the free gift of God. Salvation. Salvation that is granted to us by faith in what Christ did for us. Not anything we're able to do. Not any good works we're able to accomplish. Not any atoning works we're able to accomplish. No, no. It's God's gift to us if we repent and believe in the gospel. This free gift actually helps us, doesn't harm us. Everything we learned about sin showed us that it harms us. <laughs> the free gift of grace helps us, heals us, enables us. It says the free gift is not like the transgression or trespass, for as many died through one man's trespass, much more will the grace of God and the free gift of grace by that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. Grace, Greek word charis, unearned, loving kindness, good favor from God. God, through Jesus Christ, deals with us now differently than our sin deserves. Not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because he's merciful and gracious. And now we are under grace if we've responded to the gift he's offered. Our relationship with God is rooted now in grace, not law-keeping. Now, God's grace always existed, but we were not able to benefit from it until a solution to sin could be achieved. We've seen how sin as a principle existed pre-existed even uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. Grace pre-existed because grace is part of the very nature of God, always been part of the very nature of God. And this grace from God was finally revealed in a very special, wonderful way in the Lord Jesus Christ, his coming into this world, his life, his death, his resurrection. Next time, we're going to talk more about the contrast that these verses show us between sin and grace. But for now, isn't it wonderful that we now exist under the gift of grace, which is the gift of the gospel, which is the gift of justification, which is the gift of forgiveness, all because of what God has done through the Lord Jesus Christ's work on the cross, not because of anything we've done. Grace is not like sin. Sin only destroys. Sin only corrupts. Grace solves. Are you under grace this day? Well, Lord willing, you are. I pray you'll consider these things if you have not yet responded to the Lord Jesus Christ. And join me next week when, Lord willing, we'll continue on in our examination of the wonderful contrast between God's grace and the terrible outcomes of sin in humanity. God bless. <laughs>